Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Trial Lawyer View is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise in settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement consulting. Without further delay, here is another episode of Trial Lawyer View with Brian Smith. Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, the podcast that brings you inside the world of litigation and the fascinating stories behind some of the most significant trial lawyers in the country. Today, my guest is Brian Smith, a seasoned trial lawyer dedicated to seeking justice for victims of sexual abuse, medical malpractice, serious injuries, and wrongful death. With over $100 million in settlements and verdicts, Brian's commitment to his client shines through in every case he handles. Drawing upon his background as an advocate for children suffering from mental illness, Brian brings a unique perspective and unwavering dedication to his practice. His expertise extends beyond personal injury law. He's also a graduate of the Strauss Institute for Dispute Resolution Mediation Training Program and actively mediates cases. Brian's exceptional skills as a professional actor further enhance his courtroom performances, setting him apart in the legal field. Today, we're going to explore Brian's approach to complex litigation, his strategies for securing significant recoveries in car crash cases, and the profound impact of his work on the lives of his clients. Uh, he's a compassionate trial lawyer who's making a difference in the civil justice system and beyond. So, Brian, welcome to Trial Lawyer View. Thrilled to have you join me as a guest today, and really appreciate you taking the time to be with me. Thanks for having me, Jason, and thanks for the kind intro. Appreciate it. So you've had a, a pretty diverse legal career advocating for children suffering from mental illness, as I said in the intro, before becoming an attorney. How has your background shaped your approach to representing victims of sexual abuse, medical malpractice, and wrongful death in the civil justice system? Yeah, that's a great question. I think working in the mental health field before I went to law school helped me uh, with empathy and helped me understand the plight of the underdog, so to speak. Uh, folks that are up against difficult odds, um, up against government agencies, perhaps, that are not providing resources needed to be able to uh, get treatment, get medication. And specifically, uh, I worked in a psychiatric hospital for children where I saw firsthand the effects of trauma uh, on children. So uh, whether it's sexual trauma, physical abuse, physical neglect, uh, you see how prof profoundly children are harmed due to their childhood experiences. Um, and I think that, you know, I had no idea at the time that it would inform my perspective on the practice of law. Uh, I didn't even know I was going to go to law school when I was working in the psychiatric field. But um, in hindsight, I see uh, a, a deep connection between that 
experience and understanding their plight and their struggle. Back in the day when I was in the hospital, supervising a team of mental health providers uh, to what I do today, which is helping folks file lawsuits against uh, the church or the Boy Scouts or government entities that allowed them to be abused when they were children uh, in the context of foster care or perhaps by a priest uh, or at a, in a school setting, that type of thing. And the, the damage that is inflicted upon the child, really what I, what I learned is it, it doesn't become fully realized or understood until they are adults, until they start navigating intimacy issues and relationships. And uh, then they start looking at, well, addiction issues. Why am, why am I addicted to drugs and alcohol? And, and you start to connect those dots and it all starts to make sense. And I think if you can understand um, trauma in that context, you can really become a more effective advocate for your clients. And so you know, I'm obviously talking about sexual abuse cases here since that's about half my practice. But I also, I also think it helps in the context of any case where you're trying to understand trauma and understand you know, how a particular traumatic event has affected someone. So if you can become um, articulate in that, that vernacular, that terminology of, of trauma and um, psychological and emotional distress, uh, you can really make the client feel understood and heard. And I think that and this is just a long answer, and I apologize for being so long-winded about it, but it's an important topic because if the client feels understood and heard, they feel empowered and they feel aligned with their counsel. And together, if they are feeling that way, they're going to be a lot more confident going into litigation, and they're going to be more confident that you're going to be able to convey that story to the jury and then the trial lawyer is going to be like, okay, we're all on the same page here. Let's go try this case. And that's what gets the best result for the client is that confidence that the truth will prevail, that we are going to be able to tell this story uh, in a way that really impacts the jurors on an emotional level. Uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about that. And actually, I've talked about this with a lot of guess that idea of being able to connect with your clients, you know, what they've gone through and the impact and how to adequately convey that to the jury. But your take on it is just an interesting one, particularly I, my background is also, I got an undergraduate degree in psychology, never worked in that field other than when I was in college, I, I did a, an internship in the, um, psychiatric wing of our jail system here in Orlando, which was eye-opening to see the kind of things that people that were working in the um, system here, trying to move people out of the legal system into treatment for, you know, what they were suffering from, which was the reason they were jailed, not, not because they're necessarily criminals, because of, you know, deep psychiatric issues. But anyway, that the idea of being able to connect 
with what someone's gone through is, to me, seems what sets certain lawyers apart from other lawyers because if, if you can really convey that to the jury, that's a difference maker in, in the outcome, but also, as you said, the importance of the person that's been in, who's been injured, feeling like you're on the same team too, that, that you really get to some extent what they've been through. I, I, I think that that is a little tough having been involved in a pretty significant personal injury case myself. I, I, I do think unless you've really been through something, it's hard to understand every aspect of that. But the idea that you've conveyed it, I think is, is an incredibly important one. Yeah. And, and speaking about inmates, and you know, understanding the root cause of why they're there. I mean, this this obviously applies to the context of criminal defense too. So that's why the Jerry Spence Trial Lawyers College has this. Um, you know, the groups of, of folks that show up to those seminars and those uh, three week courses are from the criminal defense world and also the personal injury world. And you wouldn't think that intuitively there are overlaps there, but there are, there's a lot of overlap between criminal defense and personal injury because what you're trying to do is understand your client's story. And a criminal defense lawyer is going to be much more effective if they know, if, if they are able to, to understand why somebody did something, you know, what was their motivation? Was there, um, was there some other cause other than they're just a bad person, which is the narrative of the prosecution. And, um, you know, one example of that, that, um, I, I will never forget is when I was working, um, in a law clinic in law school and I was assigned a real case and my professor had me sit down with a classmate of mine and interview someone who had been charged with assault. They had allegedly assaulted their mother. And I sat down with this client, first time interviewing a client, first time taking on a real case. And the first thing he said to me was, I choked my mom. You know, there, this isn't a case. What are we doing here? So you know, I, I'm guilty. I did it. I choked my mom. And I looked at my friend and I was like, well, that's, this is pretty easy. We just need to get a plea deal here. He's confessing to us. He, I think the police report said he confessed to the police when they showed up. I choked my mom. And this was all videotaped because it was part of a clinic. And my professor watched the video and critiqued us both, my classmate and I, for not asking more questions and trying to find out the true story here. What happened? And so we brought him back for another interview and the story was much more nuanced and um, compelling than the, the first uh, version that he gave us. And the story, and I'll just tell you the nutshell version here, was that he um, lived with his mother. His mother had a severe alcohol problem and drug problem. And she had parties. This is in downtown Tacoma, um, in a bad part of town. And she would have party after party after party. And there was just strangers pouring in and out of the house all night. 
And he was in high school. He's a big guy, probably 250, 275 pounds. And uh, he has a little brother. He's like 10 years old. And they would play video games together just to get through these evenings, which were crazy. Um, all kinds of drug use and alcohol. And my client was straight edge, never touched alcohol, never uh, did any drugs. And um, I think he was 18 or something. Um, so he was either a senior in high school or just graduated. But anyway, um, the night before there was a party and um, someone had thrown a chair through their sliding glass door. And um, the client of mine had to stand guard throughout the entire night, fending off people who were trying to walk in through this open glass door and steal things out of their house. So he's worried about the safety of his, his little brother. He's worried about the safety of his mom and himself. And um, despite the fact that the, this had happened the night before, mom has another party and gets out of control. And uh, he comes downstairs because she's starting to throw things around again and is, is breaking things. And he grabs her by the shoulders and she's, you know, weighs a hundred pounds soaking wet, probably. He's 275. Grabs her by the shoulders, pushes her up against the, the wall in the kitchen and says, Mom, stop. You've got to stop this. And she says, You're choking me. You're choking me. And he, after a while, because she's screaming this over and over and over again, he breaks down crying, runs upstairs, says, I choked my mom. I choked my mom. And Cops show up because there's all this chaos. Lights are on. He runs down to the police and says, I choked my mom. Take me away. So they put him in handcuffs, arrest him, charge him with assault. Uh, they look at her. There's no bruising on her neck. There's no indication of injury of any kind. And so that's the story. You know, and so it, it was a... Um, a, a really important lesson in empathy, you know, to, to understand where someone's coming from, because you really, you know, you really don't know the confession is probably, you know, the most surface level understanding of a fact pattern in a criminal defense case. And you, you really can't understand the case unless you dig deeper. And so I took that lesson in the criminal defense context, and then through Spence college training, and I'm not a college graduate, but I've been to multiple Spence seminars, um, I, ha, has informed how I try to understand my own clients, um, whether they, you know, they have addiction issues. Maybe there's stuff in the medical records that makes them look bad on paper, or maybe they didn't go to the doctor like they should have. You know, what is the reason they didn't go to the doctor? You know, really dig deep and figure out how to tell that story to the jury before the defense does. So you get to frame what, you know, what the narrative is. Uh, anyway, that's a, that's a long, <laughs> that's a long answer to your, your question and, and a follow-up comment. So from your background in that world, the world of psychology, what, what ignited a passion for becoming a trial lawyer? 
Well, I started out, out uh, wanting to do immigration work, and that turned into, you know, I, I volunteered at an immigration attorney's office, and that attorney actually did more criminal defense than anything else. Uh, his name was Vito Dela Cruz, and this is back in the mid-90s. And um, criminal defense was really... Um, interesting to me because there was so much drama involved. There was just so, it was, it was high drama. There was, you know, a crime committed. Sometimes it's a whodunit. Most of the time, most of the time it's a, you know, why done it, not, or how done it as opposed to who done it. But the, the, um, the way that Vito, my old um, boss, and then later he became my law partner here at Tamaki Law, the way that he looked at cases was um, was unique. It, it, it was he was not attending Spence Ranch seminars that I was aware of, but he would. That's the way he handled his cases, and I just really appreciated how effective he was in the courtroom. The respect that that he garnered uh, from judges and from co counsel on conspiracy cases and. I was like, wow, he's really good at what he does. And he enjoyed trial and he had like a hundred trials under his belt. And um, so I just liked the idea of the courtroom battle and, you know, how do you prevail when the odds are against you and your client? And I saw him do it so many times. It was inspiring. And then uh, when I tried to work for him after I graduated from law school, because I clerked for him uh, all of the summers during law school, and then after graduation, he ended up closing his office and moving to a different state, um, uh, he connected me with Blaine Tamaki, where I'm at now. So that's where I interviewed uh, after graduation, and that's where I am today. It's the only experience I, I've known in a law firm. Uh, professionally as a licensed attorney. And here, I, I just had the same passion for courtroom advocacy. So I, I just soaked up as many seminars and trials and co-counsel co experiences as I could to understand how to do this at the top of my game. Um, and then later on, when I became um, successful in the sexual abuse arena, settling multi-plaintiff cases that, that made the news outside of Washington. That's when Vito read a story about what I was doing back in 2011 and uh, ended up joining me here at Tamaki Law. And it was kind of a full circle experience, you know, bringing back my old mentor now as a law partner and working with him, uh, trying cases with him. And, uh, and, and having that same, what I appreciated about Vito, he's retired now, uh, but he, he and I had the same desire to become the, the best possible trial advocates for our clients. So we're, we're constantly trying to learn, reading books, co-counseling, attending seminars, and, and felt that that was the, the portal into getting great results for our clients. And, and that carries on through today. I mean, even though he's retired, uh, my current law partners have the same 
you know, drive that I do. And that's what makes, uh, that's why when I get up in the morning, I still look forward to going to work. You know, I, I still, it, it, there, there isn't, you know, sometimes you dread it. Sometimes it's like, oh, really? I have to take a deposition with that, that opposing counsel or this client. It's like, oh, I wish this case would settle. You know, that you, everyone has those experiences, but um, doing trial work is, I think, the most re- professionally and personally rewarding thing I can imagine doing. Um, I, and, and then you get paid to do it, too. I mean, I, I would do it for free if I could. <laughs> if I could, if I could survive and, and uh, feed my family. You know, I, 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 it's just, it's not about the money for me. It's just about the, you know, how hard we work to help our clients through these, uh, navigate through these waters and then to have the result that we get for them that is life changing. I don't know where else you can get that kind of experience professionally. Yeah. I talked to our team about that because, you know, we're, we're somewhat of a part of that, um, you know, at the end, but like that, how, how, what you do has an impact for that person's life, you know, after they've been involved in, you know, what's usually a pretty significant, uh, and sometimes catastrophic injury. So that, that leads me to, I, I wanted to talk to you about some of your different areas of practice as well as strategies you utilize because you've got some some notable results and you know, in, in looking at some of the information um, from your uh, practice that you you really have had a lot of success litigating car crash cases with recoveries that exceed a million dollars. So I wanted to ask you about you know the the strategies you employ to maximize, the recovery in automobile accident cases because that that really jumped out at me. Yeah, uh, w- with car crash cases, and I think this applies for any type of case really. I think it's all about the team. So the team includes not just you and your staff, you and your partners, but also the experts that you put together. So with a car crash case, I start off with. Who is our accident reconstructionist? We need to lock in the evidence, get the photos taken, get the video taken, purchase. We have a case right now, multiple death case here in Yakima County involving a a specific type of vehicle that um, that it it was a truck. And uh, I can't get into too many details about it because it's pending litigation, but uh, we, we ended up purchasing this same make and model vehicle on eBay. And we're using that with our experts as an exemplar vehicle to take the same route that the defendant driver took. And, and it's that type of attention to detail that is not, I mean, these aren't my original ideas. So that's another thing I've noticed about, um, trial work is, you know, the trial lawyers get credit for these great results. And, and they get kudos and, Hey, you know, good job. You settled a case for, you know, 2 million or 3 million or $10 million. But, um, the, a good trial lawyer, in my opinion, is just a good manager. And so 
not just a good manager. They have to be a good manager in addition to other things. But being a manager or a coach is like a football coach. You know, you, you've got Pete Carroll for the Seahawks, and that's my frame of reference because I'm up here in the Pacific Northwest. But, you know, one of the great, what makes Pete Carroll so great at his job, um, or if you're on the East Coast, what's the, the Patriots coach name? Uh, Bill Belichick. Yeah, so um, regardless of, of where you are, the great coaches know who to hire and where to put them and and what is their highest and best use you know how are they gonna help this um help this team win and that's how i look at experts is i try to put together like the dream team and that's especially true in medical malpractice cases where you you really have to think three and four moves ahead you know should i hire a, an expert who does 90 to 95% defense work. So they can't be attacked on bias because here they're working for the plaintiff, but most of the time they work for the defense. That's how strong our case is. You know, so how do you create this narrative through your own experts that shows you are going to win this case? And, and if the defense doesn't believe it, then in fact you will win this case because they're so strong in front of the jury. You know, so if it doesn't result in a settlement, it's going to result in a big verdict. Um, and so that's where I try to put my focus is on the management of the case, managing the dream team, putting together the A team. Uh, and then also at the same time, you know, we're spinning multiple plates, but you have to listen to the client, learn their story, Use psychodrama if you need to, to get to that story and, um, and make them feel heard. And so then you're empowered. And then also more, more these uh, days than in any time in my career, I am using trial consultants. So uh, I should be hiring them much earlier in the process, but uh, I, I was uh, supposed to try a car crash case with my law partner a couple months ago and we were using a trial consultant that I wished I had brought on a year or two before but in the months before the trial this particular consultant and I'm not gonna say his name because I don't want other people to um, I, I want him to be available for me maybe that's a selfish thing to do but it's uh, he's a very special brilliant um, intellectual giant of a trial consultant and um, he's behind some of the, the biggest verdicts over the last couple of years in the country with a lot of different law firms but you can find them they're not hard to find just talk to talk to people go on to listservs you know what trial consultants are you using what, who are the folks that are helping law firms get great results in cases and and that's why I uh, I enjoy this practice so much is it doesn't have to be you know Brian Smith is the the genius behind you know th this result and I have to learn every aspect of the medicine in a medical malpractice case which I I do try to do but you know I what I want to do is I want to find the best expert to go up against the defense defense experts. 
and I want to find, and sometimes, you know, when you're trying a case, you realize that your client is going to be best served if you bring in another firm. And I do that too. You know, I, I, I don't try to hold on to a case to um, have the glory when it settles or when it, you know, goes to verdict and there's a good result. What I want to do is say, how do we service this case and this client so that we get the best possible result? And if that means bringing another firm that has more experience than I do on a, on a particular type of case, then I do that. Um, and another side benefit of doing that is just learning how other people work and how they think. Focus groups, that's another area that's, that's kind of a crossover into trial consultants. But, you know, trial consultants will do um, well, they'll conduct focus groups and they can do them, you know, via zoom. They can do them via questionnaires. They can do them in, in person, uh, in the venue of your choice. And that's immensely helpful. And that helps you understand aspects of your case and reveals issues in your case that you didn't even know were issues before. And it's that type of gestalt which is, you know, the dream team of experts, the trial consultants, the focus groups, the, uh, the psychodrama to understand your client's story, and then having, you know, the guts to try the case if you need to. That's kind of the, the, the ingredients of, of, of great advocacy, in my opinion. You've been involved in high-profile cases, including obtaining a $167 million recovery on behalf of victims of clergy sexual abuse. What are the unique challenges and responsibilities that come with representing survivors in these deeply sensitive and complex type cases? Most of the multi-million dollar, hundred million dollar plus cases involving sexual abuse are cases where there's not enough money to go around. So they end up in bankruptcy or in some type of pre-bankruptcy uh, or the threat of bankruptcy. Uh, a lot of the abuse happened decades ago when you know some years there's no insurance coverage at all. The church has taken steps to protect their assets. They've moved money around, they've uh, transferred title of certain properties to outside folks or other entities. It's extremely complicated, messy case. And the result is that there's just not enough money to go around for what they went through. And so it's a tough conversation to have when you have, for instance, in, you know, I, I just resolved an out of state case this year. Uh, and, um, it, it was a multi-plaintiff case involving hundreds of hundreds of plaintiffs, and and the case settled for I think the global result was like one hundred and twenty-nine million dollars. And any one of those cases, out of the hundreds that filed claims, is worth more than one hundred twenty-nine million dollars. You know, so how how is that justice? And, and that's, you know, that's the tough conversation that, that has to be had with each individual claimant. Um, same thing in the Boy Scout case that's, that's still active right now. Uh, and, and that 
you know, if that settlement gets approved and, and is not sent back by the Court of Appeals, you know, there's going to be a lot of tough conversations that attorneys are going to have with their clients about case value. Uh, but th there is, I think, I think that there's value in the claims process that will hopefully result in a feeling of closure and will make it worth going through the hardship that they're going through to file their claim. Um, you know, there is some measure of accountability that's achieved through those cases, but they're, um, they're really tough from that standpoint because, you know, at the end of the day, if you're handing a check to a client for a couple hundred thousand dollars or, you know, whatever the, the result is that is not full justice, you know, how do you talk about it in a way where the client can feel like, yes, you know, the attorney did everything they could for me. And I'm glad that I went, that I came forward and told my story, that I made a difference somehow. Um, so there, that's, I think the biggest challenge with, with those types of cases is just trying to manage client expectations and also trying to find a way to talk about it so that um, and, and this, this isn't, you know, trying to put lipstick on a pig or, you know, trying to frame it in a way that's dishonest with clients. It's just trying to really find the narrative um, that allows the client to find some peace that they, that it was worth coming forward and participating in the case. Um, and also it's, it's very hard to get to trial in those cases because oftentimes the defendants will file for bankruptcy and it puts a stay on all litigation. So the folks that think that they're going to have some sort of catharsis through a, a trial process, uh, they don't get to achieve that. But the flip side is they don't get forced to go to trial. There's a lot of people that do not want that option. They would prefer to have a more informal process of, you know, having their claim evaluated by a claims adjudicator and, you know, getting something that is, uh, you know, including an apology letter and some commitments to make changes so it doesn't happen again, and changes in policies and procedures within the church. And so that they feel like, okay, yeah, it's not enough money, but at least there's changes made because I came forward that are going to hopefully protect kids in the future. A case um, in my career a number of years ago where I was assisting in a matter in New York, which involved a foster uh, parent situation that was abusing special needs children that were under her roof. And I, I just remember very vividly the idea of how do you, how do you value, because, you know, part of the question was how much does each person get and how long were they exposed to that environment? And but yet all of them had either, you know, psychological issues or drug addiction issues, you know, just from being exposed to the situation overall. So all of that, I, I would just imagine is even more amplified in some of these higher, higher profile sexual abuse cases like um, you, you talked about. It's 
that area to me is is one that is just difficult because of what's occurred not not that any of these cases are easy because you know, having seen all sorts of catastrophic situations you know all of them are can can be you know very very um, tragic in their own right so um, it, there there was a, a uh, settlement that I wanted to ask you about because it was a medical malpractice case, and you you had mentioned you know, your um, your what you do when you're representing someone in a med mal case, which is dive into the medicine side of it. And I, and I know from having done defense work in the in the med mal area that that's that those cases are time intensive and expensive to litigate. You. Um, had a $12 million settlement um, in what was uh, the, I don't know if it still is, but the, the largest medical malpractice settlement in the history of Central or Eastern Washington. Um, can you talk about the impact of getting something like that, that kind of recovery in your client's life and also the broader impact in, in terms of the pursuit of justice in, in healthcare? Yeah, I, I can't talk specifically about that case um, because of the nature of the confidentiality um, uh, the confidentiality agreement that the client signed. And, uh, but but there, um, you know, so settling a, a, a case of that magnitude for a client is uh, is really rewarding to to see happen because there's a reason that the case settled for what it did and it's because a lot was taken from the client and so to to see something come back to them that obviously is not going to make them whole it's not going to turn back the you know turn back time and and, and make so it didn't happen but it, it does make up for a lot you know financial security and you know this from being on the the settlement um you know the the structure side of things and you know helping folks with settlement decisions um it can be life-changing you know and it's it's really rewarding to change lives in that way through the transfer of money i mean i i almost look at it um in, in a robin hood sort of way it's not it's not that we're we're robbing from the rich or stealing from the rich and, and giving it to the poor but what we're doing is we're requiring these companies that have immense resources like insurance companies and corporations to be held accountable, which is really, really rare, especially today when the differential between the haves and the have nots has never been more uh, stark. And, and so, you know, the, the, um, the billionaire class has become almost untouchable these days with um you know with accountability you know there there is no accountability or it's very hard to find um situations where billionaires or individuals or or you know multi-billion dollar corporations are held accountable ultimately for wrongdoing so when you are part of making that happen and you see the benefits of your client actually being able to breathe and not have to worry about being homeless 
uh, you know, it's, it's very, very rewarding. And throughout the case, um, you know, the most, the case that we were just talking about, uh, the multi-plaintiff case that settled for 129 million, a lot of those clients were, I shouldn't say a lot of them, many of them were homeless. I mean, they, they were, they had addiction issues. They were on the verge of homelessness or homeless at various times throughout the case. And so to settle that case and to see how it changed their lives uh, was just as rewarding as it was in that medical malpractice case involving a $12 million recovery. It's, it's like you just feel part, like you feel like you're doing something right. And you know you're on the right side of things. And not to disparage anybody who does defense work, because I know you did med mal defense work, and everybody deserves to have an advocate on their side. But you know, when when I achieve results like that for clients, I feel like I I was right. <laughs> you know, I, I'm doing something right here, and um, I, I just love what I do for that reason. That I feel like I am morally and from a from an integrity standpoint doing right by my clients and in terms of changes within um, the medical system that's a really hard one to gauge because they have this and you know this doing defense work you know they, they've got this um, system that's very cloaked in secrecy which is you know their their behind the scenes assessment of what went wrong, you'll never see, you know, no matter how hard you try in litigation, you can't get your hands, at least in Washington state, you can't get your hands on it. Uh, quality assurance, they call it in Washington, quality assurance commission. And, and um, so you really don't know, you know, what types of changes are being made to make sure it doesn't happen again. I've had wrong patient surgery cases that I've settled and I had no idea afterwards what steps they were taking to make sure that they didn't operate on the wrong patient again. Sometimes you're just crossing your fingers going, gosh, I hope because they paid out all this money, they're going to make changes so it doesn't happen again. Um, and then, you know, maybe some attorneys are actually insisting on seeing the changes being made. And maybe that could be part of a non-monetary term of, of the settlement. Um, in the sexual abuse arena, we almost always insist on non-monetary terms of the settlement, meaning we want to see policies and procedures in writing posted on your website so that we know this is at least the chance of this happening again is low. So you're taking active measures to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, so that's, that's something that trial lawyers you know, it's a tool in our toolbox, non-monetary terms of settlement. Defense lawyers don't like it. You know, they, they like to keep it limited to, all right, it's just, here's some money, sign the release and go away. But, you know, if we're really in this for the right reasons, we should be thinking about cases that way. How to make, it's, it's a public service that we're doing. How to make sure that folks are protected in the future, that our community is safer in the future. I mentioned in your introduction about the Strauss Institute uh, for Dispute Resolution and your um, actively mediating cases. How has that helped you in your own practice? 
slight correction on the bio. I, I did graduate from the Strauss Institute. I, I do mediate cases, but I have not started an active mediation practice yet. So I am not serving as a mediator yet. Uh, I have, I've been reluctant to put up that shingle just because of my trial calendar. And I'm not, not sure I have the time yet to start mediating. I have the desire to do it. I don't know if I have the time, but mediation has always been for me. Um, I felt, I felt very comfortable in that setting in mediation, uh, because I feel like getting the perspective of a good experience mediator um, helps me better prepare for trial, even if the case doesn't settle. Like sitting down, seeing your client go through the process, which is like, you know, they're under the microscope a little bit. They're being asked questions by the mediator. They, they are um, getting a little sneak peek at what the defenses are, what the, how the defense is looking at their case through you know, filtered through the mediator. Um, and it just helps me become a better advocate and it helps prepare my client and set their expectations for trial. So I think I like mediation. There's a lot of attorneys that are rough and tumble types that are like, I do not mediate. You know, if the, if the local rules require me to mediate, I file a motion to get out of it and they refuse to mediate. And that's fine. I mean, everybody has their own approach to litigation and advocacy. And I don't, um, you know, I, I don't judge them for, for not going through the process, but for me, I really appreciate mediation because ultimately if you can get the case settled, even if it's for a result, that's less than the client was maybe hoping for, but they can live with, and that's kind of the um, that, that's kind of the ethos of the Strauss Institute is that, you know, a good settlement is where, you know, both sides walk away angry or whatever the definition is. I, I don't think that that's entirely accurate. I don't think you want your client to walk away angry with a settlement, but I think what you want is you want the client to feel like they took control over the outcome of the case. And I think that can be cathartic. It's like, okay, I made a decision, a very calculated, thoughtful decision over the course of an eight-hour day mediating the case that I'm going to take control over the, the settlement value of my case and I'm going to settle this case. And that type of decision-making, I think, can make, feel, make the client feel like um, I don't know, just a sense of satisfaction that it was them. It wasn't like, all right, here you go, 12 strangers. You know, let me know, <laughs> let me know what my life is worth. Let me know what has, whatever has been taken from me, you be the judge of how much that is worth. And I think most people really don't like the idea of that, of having 12 strangers decide their fate in that way. Um, so that's why I like mediation. That's why I look forward to eventually opening a mediation practice and, um, and helping people resolve their cases that way. Um, another problem that I'm seeing is that courtroom congestion 
and you know cases being backlogged for years and years is justice delayed justice denied so here in yakima county it's not unusual to see cases get continued three and four times and it takes sometimes three to four to five sometimes six years to actually get in front of a jury and in the meantime what's going on in people's lives you know other things happen they get they get in a second car crash they fall down at work you know the case becomes more complicated over time and that just plays into the hands of the defense so I um, I like mediation from that standpoint too it's like let's figure out a way to get this case resolved so that you aren't at the mercy of a uh, clogged civil justice system yeah and that was definitely my experience personally and having been a part of this system I, I knew what to expect but the idea of being empowered one to you know talk directly to the other side uh, mine was a little unique because I did the damages presentation in my own mediation just because my lawyer said hey you could probably articulate this the best and make sure the adjuster understands she probably doesn't want you to be on the stand to explain what the impact of this has been on your life um, as a lawyer you know that's probably not a good decision to put a lawyer on the stand to do that uh, but you know just being able to have that opportunity and go through that process I, that certainly helped me on the closure side of things and i've seen a you know in, in my career and working with people that there is there definitely is something to that and taking that power back to determine the outcome ultimately of all of this because there is and that was what was very hard for me being in the icu for example was feeling completely helpless and zero power you know when you're in that kind of a, a situation so i think there's there's a lot of reasons why that that empowerment is so powerful for mediation yeah that's that's a good point um about speaking about your own damages the client speaking at the mediation i think that can be extremely powerful uh, with mediators when they take that message back to the defense like this is a great witness this is your chance. Um, they're ready to settle. And you do not want to have this person testifying in front of a jury. A few more questions for wrap up. Uh, I know that you um, used to have your own podcast called Dream Path. And you, through that podcast, explored artist journeys of musicians, filmmakers, writers, and other creatives. And I'm curious about how your passion for the arts intersect with your legal career um, and also whether through interviewing um, people that you discover any parallels between artistic journeys and the challenges faced by trial lawyers? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I started the podcast to, I think what I was looking for is a creative outlet for myself because I was a little bit burned out with just trying cases, just work and family. And I wanted something that was for me, that was kind of satisfying my own curiosity, answering questions about how folks who chose a different path 
didn't. So the folks that chose to go into the arts, they dove in head first. How did they do it? Did they go to film schools? Like if they're a film director, did they go to film school? Did they shoot a movie on their phone? And, or did they you know, do a short film and put it up on YouTube? How did they get into their first film festival? Or if they're uh, a music artist, like, like Moby is an artist that I, I interviewed. And, um, you know, how does Moby look back on his career in terms of um, how he fits into music history, what his intention was when he first started, why he's still doing it? Um, all of those were very personally like th those were my personal questions that I had. So it was, it was kind of a selfish endeavor in a way I wasn't creating the podcast and be like, Oh, this is what I think other people may be interested in. Of course, I would love for them to be interested in this because then I'll have more listeners, but it was really just a selfish endeavor for me to learn how to make the leap myself because I was thinking, well, what if I want to be a creative in some way, you know, beyond just picking up my guitar after work and, you know, playing a tune or, or going to my friend's house and playing guitar with them or, or writing a poem or something like that. You know, I wanted to know how do you do this, the craft of music or acting or filmmaking. And what I found was that it, it became pretty obvious after the first few interviews, but I you know, it really got hammered in over the course of three years, that the people that were really successful at what they did, there was no plan B. So they said, you know what, I'm going to be a musician. And they made that commitment and they did it no matter what. Even if they were poor, they were on the verge of, you know, not being able to pay the rent or put food on the table. They found a way, they hustled and they made it happen. So it's that type of passion and dedication that allowed them to put in the 10,000 hours. You know, if we're talking about, you know, the, the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours of how to become extremely uh, proficient in anything that you do, that's what they did. And then I started to see, well, it, it's kind of the same with trial work. If you, if you look at really great trial lawyers, I mean, that's all they're doing. They're trying cases, they're deep in it, and they're passionate about it. Um, my interviews with, I, I think my, my interviews with clients and the interviews that I did of witnesses and depositions and the interviews that I did in podcasts, there was a lot of parallels there because I was the same person, no matter what the context, I was the same person. I had a different objective in each of those contexts. But when I take a deposition, I don't turn into somebody else. I mean, I'm very much like this with you. I, I'm, I'm naturally curious. I want to know. I want to step into their shoes. I want to roll reverse with them and find out what the driver was thinking and doing and, you know, what they went through or an expert witness. I want to know, you know, what their perspective is. And I, I want to, 
approach it not from an arrogant, indignant standpoint. How could you take this position that hurts my client's case? I really want to know. And I think if you can understand another person's story, you know, whether if, if that person is even uh, an antagonist in your case, the better you understand their story, the better advocate you're going to be in the case for your client. Uh, the way I do, did that is through interviews. And so I interviewed folks in depositions. I interviewed people in, in, um, in, in podcast interviews and my clients. And, and so that was kind of a self-discovery situation where I was like, you know what? It's all the same thing. It's like it's just being a human being, being naturally curious. And the second that I stopped being naturally curious with my podcast, where I was kind of like, okay, I'm asking the same questions over and over again. I think I know the, I think I know the answers. Uh, I don't think I'm revealing a lot that's new, you know, so I'm not really delivering content that's, that's unique and, and helpful and something that they couldn't get in previous interviews. So if my natural curiosity starts to wane, I think it's time to go. It's time to hang up the, the headphones. And that's what I did after three years. And um, it was a hard thing to do, but it was, um, it was helpful professionally to go through interviews and podcasts uh, in the podcast format because I did discover that there are so many parallels when it comes to trying to discover someone's story and revealing that story through, through questions. And I think it helps you in the courtroom too. You know, I, I mean a good there, I think there's a reason that podcasts are so popular these days that people that know how to ask good questions are, they're connecting with folks and they're, they are sort of asking the same questions that the audience is naturally wondering about. So you've got people that have, you know, a hundred million subscribers on YouTube that are, you know, podcast stars that are making hundreds of millions of dollars per year or tens of millions of dollars per year. There's a reason that podcasts are, are so popular is that these folks that are really good, like Howard Stern is probably one of the best, right? Um, or at least, even if you don't like him, you have to at least admit that he's really successful. There's a reason that he's successful. Um, and, and that's, you know, maybe that's something trial lawyers can, you know, learn from. Is if you're going to be in a courtroom trying a case and you're asking questions of a witness, do you want to be the guy or gal who um, is tearing apart the witness, like viciously attacking the witness? Or do you want this person to be the likable podcast host who is letting the witness, if they're an opponent, if they're an antagonist, ask the questions in a way where the witness is going to sink the case themselves. So you let them do it. You're, you're not the bad guy or the, the, the bad, um, the bad gal, so to speak. You know, you're, 
you're the person who is revealing the truth. You're the person who is revealing the story through your questions, not in a manipulative way, not in a performative way, not as, as shtick, you know, but just you are the person who really wants to know what the truth of the case is. Um, and, and that's, um, that's my takeaway from three years of, of doing podcast interviews is like, I, I learned how to be a better courtroom advocate. I learned how to be a better advocate for my client doing an initial intake, trying to find out what happened to them. I learned how to be a better witness interviewer. Um, and also it really helped me creatively too. I'm still like to this day, I'm, I'm taking voice lessons. I'm taking guitar lessons. I'm tonight. I'm going over to my friend's house to play guitar for our, our, our weekly, um, Wednesday night guitar session. And I think that's another important part of uh, being a human being is not overlooking our needs, whatever. I'm not saying everyone needs to have a creative outlet, but they need something other than, you know, their, their eight to five job to be fulfilled. Yeah. hundred percent. Really some fascinating little tidbits in there. Thank you. So maybe I asked a, a decent question there. <laughs> I don't know, you know, a um, couple, couple of questions before I let you go. Um, th this next one I always ask, it's, it's somewhat self-serving. Um, what are the most difficult related issues that you face when you're settling cases today? Is it dealing with liens? Is it dealing with Medicare related issues? Is it government benefit preservation, like when someone's on Medicaid or SSI or something altogether different. I'm curious about what you're, what you're seeing today as big issues when you settle a case. All of the above, everything that you've just listed there is, you know, those are things that I talk to my law partners about daily, um, dealing with really difficult lien issues dealing with and specifically on lien issues, ERISA liens. So, you know, the, the health insurers that are not even health insurance companies, they're just self-insured corporations like Costco that uses Aetna to administer their claims. And you'll have a client who has back surgery and, you know, permanent problems. They've got neuropathy in their, their leg, their feet and their they're never going to be the same. And uh, Costco or, and Aetna will say, I don't care. I want it all. I want every single dime of that person's settlement. And it's really sad. It's a sad commentary on America that we've allowed lawmakers to have corporations just run amok like this in, 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 over the rights of individuals. And, um, and so that's why I, I'm glad that companies like Synergy are around, you know, as a, as a resource for attorneys who are representing clients that, um, would not get anything or maybe would get a lot less unless they had the expertise of a settlement professional to help them negotiate a lien, uh, or help educate, you know, plaintiff lawyers on how to negotiate the lien themselves. And then you've got, you know, public benefits, benefits issues, you know, you can give 
um, you know, $50,000 to someone who was injured in a car crash case. But if it means that they're going to lose their medical coverage or they're going to lose their disability payments, uh, it could be actually worse than if they had not settled the case at all and they never even had a case. So, you know, dealing with public benefits, benefits preservation is another, you know, important part of our practice. It's not a glamorous part of the practice. It's on, it's usually on the back end of the case where we're first talking about uh, benefits preservation, but it's key because if they lose benefits, their quality of life is going to go down dramatically. And there's, there's a lot at stake there. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I think it's one of the probably the least sexy parts uh, part of a, a personal injury case is dealing with the liens and the public benefits and all of that. Uh, but it is probably the most important part of the case ultimately, because sometimes the easiest part of the case is the settlement itself. You know, they'll come in with a sometimes a client will come to me already settled the case. Like the insurance company has offered me their full policy limit, but I know that if I take it, I'm not going to get a dime of it because my insurance company is going to take it all. And so I know the, all of my work has to be on, you know, the back end of the case, trying to figure out how to maximize the net in their pocket. And that's where synergy comes in. So, uh, last question, open-ended, you can talk about whatever you want. What's your view as a trial lawyer? What's my view as a trial lawyer? Yeah. Just, just generally speaking, whatever you want to talk about that maybe we haven't talked about yet or, or some, some philosophy you want to impart, whatever, whatever you'd like. Um, I would say, you know, life is short and I forget who said this, um, but, you know, live every day. I think it was Mark Twain. Live, live every day is if it's your last, because one day you'll be right. <laughs> and that in the personal injury business, we see tragedies every single day uh, that shock the conscience. And somebody can think that they're just walking across the street to go get a cup of coffee and they step off the curb and, um, and they're gone. You know, their, their family is left, um, searching for answers and they're struggling to make ends meet. And, um, it, it really makes you think about mortality and how much time we have on this earth. It's not a lot of time. So, my personal philosophy, and this kind of goes back to the issue of creative outlets and kind of doing what you want to do now is live your life now. Don't wait to live your life. Like don't, don't have a timeline of, well, in 10 years, that's when I'm going to schedule that trip that I've always wanted to take. Or, uh, in five years, I'm going to, you know, do X, Y, Z, do it now. You know, it, you, there's, there's just no guarantee. And, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the folks that were the hardest working people I ever knew growing up were, um, some of my friends, parents who were doctors. Um, and I, I grew up, you know, lower middle class and 
my my family declared bankruptcy multiple times and you know we we struggled financially but i had some friends who uh were pretty well off and some of those friends their parents were doctors and they were they worked so so hard and uh one of those friends his his dad um retired a few years ago it took his first trip to europe after he retired and within a couple of months he was diagnosed with cancer and he quickly died after that i think within 6 months he was dead of the diagnosis and that really made me think about this concept of living your life now like don't wait to take that trip uh and I, and maybe it's just because of my profession and how people's lives are snuffed out too soon and uh it, it it's so awful and and it I never get numb to it I never get desensitized to it it always affects me especially um when folks lose a child but you know young adults uh, getting killed or you know dying from you know strange illnesses it happens and so um that's a long way of saying Jason that you know that's a philosophy that, that I try to uh to try to live every single day is to to live my life now I'm right there with you although it, it took getting hit by a car while I was cycling which is was my personal injury case to really hit that more home for me personally and from that moment on I I realized that I needed to prioritize things a little bit differently um unfortunately sometimes it takes something like that but you're right seeing these things over over a career um hopefully most people realize that but sometimes people are so absorbed with their work that they they miss life going on around and there there are a lot of important things uh family um and outside interests that you know help make you a, a well-rounded person not just a, an expert in your in your field so uh yeah great great advice and i would also say take care of yourself physically you know especially for trial lawyers it's easy to make excuses like i'm too busy you know i i i'm in trial i get it when you're in trial you, there's almost no time to work out or whatever but self-care is so important and that means eating right exercising watching your blood sugar watching your cholesterol um there's a great book that i'm reading right now called um outlive by peter atia a t t i a yeah um he's I, great his podcast is great too i don't know if you've listened to that his but. podcast is fantastic i've heard some marathon interviews with peter atia one of them a couple of them have been on the tim ferris podcast uh where he succinctly summarizes uh, a 17 hour audiobook into in just a couple of hours um but it's a fantastic book there's a lot of books like that but i think that's probably the best and um i think huberman has one that's coming out soon too but yeah just pay attention pay attention to your health and it's not being selfish when you do that when you hop on an exercise bike or you go for a run or you lift weights i think people feel guilty that especially when they have a family they feel guilty like oh you know this is i'm doing this for me i should be focusing on my cases or my kids 
but you can't focus on your cases and your kids if you're sick or you're dead. Brian, so um, if any of our listeners um, are interested in working with you on a case co-counsel or need to refer a case somebody in your jurisdiction, or I know you, you do work in other jurisdictions as well, what's the best way to get in touch with you? They can email me at uh, bsmith at tamakilaw.com. That's T-A-M-A-K-I-L-A-W.com. I'm at the Tamaki Law Firm here in Washington State. And um, you can, you know, call me anytime, email me. And, you know, even if you just want to run ideas uh, on, you know, experts or anything like that, I've got a pretty big data bank of experts that I work with throughout the country and a lot of co-counsel ideas on different types of cases throughout the country. Uh, and I've had the good fortune to meet a lot of brilliant, uh, wonderful, generous trial lawyers throughout the country that um, have uh, have been great to work with and I've learned a lot from them. So even if it's just to connect and say hello, you know, reach out and um, maybe we can work together one day. We'll include your contact information in the show notes for today so people can find you. And um, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Trial Law Review and we'll see everyone in the next episode. Thanks a lot, Jason. Thank you for tuning in to Trial Lawyer View. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion and encourage you to tune in to our next episode for more helpful insights about your practice. This podcast is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. Visit SynergySettlements.com to learn more about how we allow trial lawyers to focus on what they do best.